Chapter 1, Treasured Years Memories of my treasured childhood years in my hometown of Debrecen, Hungary, take me back to the time, too brief in my case, when my life was carefree and mostly happy. I surmise I was unplanned, the seventh child in a family already crowded with three sons and three daughters. I was born on Monday, September 17, 1928. It was also the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. My mother was 38 years old when I was born, and as I was growing up, she often seemed weary, except for her expressive, beautiful, large, dark brown eyes that could silently discipline us kids just by opening to a saucer-like size. My mother, Margit Klein, was 20 years old when she married my father, Shandor Weissenberg, on Monday, June 6, 1910. During the next 18 years, she had 11 births and one miscarriage. Four of her children died before the last four children were born, three of them tragically within one week in a citywide scarlet fever and diphtheria epidemic. I was told by relatives that my mother became depressed and ill after this tragedy. Most of my siblings were much older than I was. The three eldest were Janu, born 1911, Miklos, 1912, and Erzsébet, or Elizabeth, whom we called Böschke, born 1916. Then there was an age gap because of the children who died. Then there was Clary, born 1922, Laszlo, or Lutzi, 1924, and Avi, born 1925, who was the closest to me in age. We lived in a Jewish area of the city, and our house at Nugati Utsa 34 was one of three modest dwellings that centered around the courtyard. We had to open a huge iron door from the street to enter the property, and I can still visualize the long, heavy iron key, too large for me to use when I was a child. One of the dwellings belonged to my uncle Wilmosh, my father's oldest brother and his wife Charolta. Theirs was the largest house. In the third dwelling lived Charolta's sister, Aunt Rosa, with her husband, Uncle Herman, and their two grown daughters. We were a circle of extended family. All these dwellings were simple as they were not rich. But the many potted plants in the courtyard, my mother's favorites, made it colorful and scented the air in the spring, summer, and autumn. It was my job to water the plants as soon as I could reach them. Beyond the courtyard, there was a connecting doorway a shortcut to my father's business, which was a large scrap iron and metal yard that also supplied small agricultural machinery. However, the official entry to the business was from the street at Sepeshegi 39. My father sold every conceivable wrought iron and metal product, such as railway tracks and huge steel sheets, new and used and the different scrap metals, 
bronze, brass, copper, and various items of the trade were stored in a number of covered sheds. There were two other rooms where the business was. One was an office and the other had been converted into a small prayer room that was equipped with a precious Torah scroll, bought by Uncle Wilmosh and Aunt Charlotte on one of their trips to Jerusalem. Jewish businessmen in our neighborhood who didn't want to walk too far for daily prayers prayed in this small room twice a day with the minion, which included my father, my uncle, and at least eight other men. Many years later, an archivist I had consulted about information of my family wrote a book about the history of Debrecen and included a chapter of the Jewish community. In it, he mentioned that my father was a philanthropist. Every year, my father donated money and materials to a trade school in Debrecen, contributing to the betterment of education in the city. I remember being mischievous in my early childhood. I grew up in a very busy household full of siblings and constant activities of one kind or another, but little attention was paid to me. Some of the stories about my childhood I remember directly. Others I remember because they were told over and over again. There was the story of the wallet. Once, when I was three or four years old, I asked my mother for a few pennies, Hungarian fillers, because I wanted to go to the store to buy some candy. It was laundry day, and my mother was busy supervising the two hired washerwomen who came to do the washing for our large family. My mother dismissed me without giving me money. And so, when she wasn't looking, I lifted her wallet out of her apron pocket and took the fillers myself. I didn't know what to do with the wallet once I had accomplished the theft, so I hid it under one of the huge cauldrons that was used to boil the white clothing and bedding. When it was time to pay the washerwomen, my mother couldn't find her wallet. Apparently there was a big dispute, but I remained quiet. At night after the fire under the cauldrons went down and Marty, our helper, cleaned out the ashes, she found the metal snap that had been on my mother's wallet. Somehow the evidence pointed toward me, and when I was asked, I admitted amid tears what I had done. Years later, I asked my mother, Did you punish me? No, she replied, you were too young to understand the significance of what you have done, burning all that money. We only scolded you. Then there was the affair of the chicken. One day I was entrusted to take the chicken to the shoichet, the religious slaughterer, to be killed. It was one of those tasks I loathed, but I had to do it. We were having guests for dinner, and the extra meat was needed. 
I was ashamed to be seen carrying the bird, so I placed it in the bottom of a narrow satchel, just in case I meet a friend. I arrived at the Scheuchet with a dead bird. The poor thing had suffocated. The Scheuchet would not touch it, of course. It was a perfectly healthy chicken, but because it died a natural death before it could be slaughtered, according to strict Jewish ritual, it was not kosher for us to eat. A woman who was working at the Scheuchet's wanted the chicken's blood for blood pudding, I suppose, and cut its throat to drain it. But I had to go home with the dead bird and confess what happened. To make matters worse, my punishment was to try to sell the chicken to one of our non-Jewish neighbors. I did manage to sell it at half the original price. My rank in the family as the youngest had pros and cons. Our mother, whom we called Anyu, the Hungarian term for mom, never indulged any of us, as I recall. She had no time for that, and there was no favorite child or special time spent with any of us. Maybe that's why I was very precocious. I resented the fact that it wasn't only my parents who always told me what to do, but also my six siblings. Being the youngest was a double-edged sword, a burden and privilege. On the one hand, I was ordered around by my older siblings, and on the other hand, I was protected by my parents as the baby of the family. Yanu, my oldest brother, who was 17 years my senior, would address me by my nickname, Yutka, go get some cigarettes. Just like that. And I would reply, you're not my father. You can't tell me what to do. I didn't like to be ordered around period. I still don't. But if he paid me, I did it. What a mercenary. Although we had a living made because my mother was not well, the girls, never the boys, all had to help with some housework. When there were tasks to be done, one of my siblings, usually Avi, would ask, Where is Yutka? When is she going to do something to help around here? Anya would intervene. Oh, leave her alone. She's just a child. My sister Avi, who was three years older than I was, was my most frequent but rather reluctant babysitter. I vividly remember one incident and she grudgingly took me for a walk because Anyu had ordered her to. I don't know where she took me, but at one point she stopped and said, Well, Yutka, this is the end of the world. I think I'm going to leave you here. I don't know how old I was, maybe four, but I got scared and started bawling. I was still bawling when we arrived home. Anyu asked why I was crying, and I told her, Avi wanted to leave me at the end of the world. My sister was chastised for frightening me, but as much as she resented me then, we later became very close and she took on a motherly role. We would often laugh heartily when recalling our childhood quarrels. 
My father had a few siblings, but I remember only those who lived close by. There were Uncle Vilmos and Aunt Charolto next door, who were childless and filled in like grandparents for us seven siblings. Uncle Vilmos had raised my father, who was seven years old when their father, Jacob, died, leaving their mother, Katarina, widowed. Portraits of my grandparents, dark, slightly frightening oil paintings, used to hang in our dining room, and as a young child, I could not relate to them. My father's brother, Hugo, had six children. He and Aunt Malvina lived on Sepeshegi Utsa in a beautiful large home on the same street as our business. Uncle Hugo was quite rich, I think, and according to my father, he was a bit of a dandy. He loved to wear many gold rings and sported a small, well-trimmed beard. He also had a much-admired automobile, a rarity in those days. We children felt ever so privileged to ride in it occasionally. I still remember the car windows, which were decorated with lovely short velvet curtains that had little gold pom-poms hanging at the edges. Father also had a sister, Serena, and a brother, Miksha. When Hungary was carved up after World War I in the Treaty of Trianon, family ties were affected, especially in Anya's family. She had a brother in what was now considered Slovakia, and his daughter, Irenke, and her children, Livia and Pista, would occasionally spend summer vacations with us. Livia was unforgettable to me with her flaming red hair, green eyes, freckled face, and mischievous nature. Anu's sister Serena and her family lived in what was now Transylvania. We seldom saw them because we needed a visa to visit them. Anu's other brother Bela and two sisters Giza and Malvina lived in Debrecen and Bihar Nagybayom, respectively, and my older siblings socialized a lot with their children who were of the same age. There were many loud car games played in our home amid lots of laughter and joking. As a child, I enjoyed just watching them until the jokes got risque and I was sent to bed. We knew my maternal grandparents, Yeti and Lipot Klein, a little. They lived in the village of Bihor Nagybayom, and for many summers, Avi and I would spend a few weeks with them. It was an exciting visit because we traveled there by train. My grandparents owned a big general store on the main street, and I loved the various aromas in that store. I also strongly favored the jar that sat on one of the counters. It held little square chocolates wrapped in paper with a picture of a cow indicating that it was milk chocolate and ever so often we would receive a chocolate. Visiting there was a joy. There is an incident from one of those visits that I don't know if I remember or I just remember my parents talking about. One day I wandered off and didn't come home until late, and they were getting worried. 
Everyone in the village knew my grandparents and they knew who I was. And finally, somebody brought me home and told my grandparents, Yudka ate something delicious in our home. Yes, I ate the ear of a pig, I chimed in. The family had just killed a pig, and apparently I hadn't wanted to eat it because it wasn't kosher. But the family talked me into it, saying that it was okay because the ear was on the outside of the pig. I ate it, and I liked it. My grandparents laughed when they heard this, and of course I wasn't punished. I was five years old when Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933. Blissfully, I was unaware of the significance of this event and the kind of impact Hitler would have on my life more than a thousand kilometers from Berlin. Like most children, I happily attended kindergarten. I remember my first day well. As I timidly walked into the kindergarten room, Mrs. Almashi, the teacher, suddenly called out, Ishtenem, oh my God, here comes another Weissenberg. How did she know? I wondered. But of course she had recognized my coat, which had been worn by six Weissenbergs before me. It was a sheared mouton and had big pom-pom buttons with loops to fasten them, and could be worn by boys or girls. It seems it was an unforgettable coat. I remember how on my second day of primary school, when Bershke helped me put on my new, six-times-handed-down leather school bag, she noticed how heavy it was. Yudko, whatever did you put in this bag, she asked. Oh, just a few movie magazines to while away my boredom during recess, was my matter-of-fact reply. She burst out in good-humored laughter. Bershke was 12 years my senior and was like a surrogate mother to me. Whenever I had a problem or a pressing question, I would turn to her. With her kindness and infinite patience, Mixed with a little teasing now and then, she answered my questions in ways I could understand. Then one day after her wedding in 1933, Bershke disappeared from my life for several years. She married a fellow Hashomer Hatzair Zionist, Shandor Roth, in a seemingly genuinely joyous all-night wedding celebration in our home. Most memorable was her dancing the horror and shedding the long, fine veil of her wedding dress as she did to my utter dismay. I had secretly hoped to wear it one day. Avid idealist, the newly wedded couple left for British-mandate Palestine with Bershka's enormous trousseau and all to live in a kibbutz where they would help build a Jewish homeland a move much opposed by my Orthodox father, who objected to building of a secular Jewish nation. A while later, my second oldest brother Miklos would also leave for Palestine as a Hashomer Halutz pioneer. Then the letters came. Their secret contents were never revealed to us younger siblings 
reflecting a common attitude towards children at that time. But my mother's tears when reading the letters indicated unhappiness all around. Selfish me, to my joy, and in an unforeseeably tragic move, Bushke returned, minus her husband in 1938, five years after she had left, and amid grossly heightened anti-Jewish laws and sentiments in Hungary. My brother Miklos returned soon after. Later, Bushke would tell us more about her marriage and her life in Mandate Palestine, and about how disappointing her experience with Zionism and kibbutz life were. The most shocking thing we would learn was that her marriage to Shandor was fake. My father wouldn't let Bershke go to Palestine as a single woman, so she married a man who agreed that they would divorce as soon as they got to Palestine. However, once they were on the kibbutz, her new husband wanted to stay with her, and there was a dispute in the kibbutz over the whole situation. Bershke eventually ended up moving to Tel Aviv and working as a governess for the rest of her time there. The Jewish holidays were the highlight of our childhood years. I just love Purim a festive holiday that celebrates the deliverance of the Jews from imminent doom at the hands of their enemies, a story told in the biblical book of Esther, which my parents would hear read in the synagogue. For us kids, the fun part was the endless baking, the heavenly aroma of cinnamon, cocoa, and nutmeg wafting through the house, and the anticipation of eating my mother's delicious baked goods. I think Anya was considered one of the best bakers among her friends. When Bershke came back from Palestine, she took a course in making rich, sumptuous pastry. I can still see the heavenly-laden tables covered in mouth-watering pastries made by both of them. I especially remember Bershke's Rigoyanchi, a decadent chocolate mousse pastry. I still salivate just thinking about Purim. Anya was insistent about the tradition of giving shalach manot, gifts of food, and we children had the honor of delivering heavenly goodies to poor people as well as to friends and family. Our cousins who were our age would also come over on Purim and we would play with our precious marbles. We didn't have fancy things, but we had a big yard and lots of space to play. On Sukkot, the autumn harvest festival, the tradition is to build a hut called a sukkah, decorate it, and eat meals in it for seven days. Our sukkah was unique because we used my uncle Wilmush's modern prefab sukkah. It was easy to put up, and only the dry vegetation, the shach that covered the top of the sukkah, was new every year. The shach was carefully arranged so that we could see the sky through the branches. My uncle had decorations for the interior of the sukkah, including his favorite, a picture of Emperor Franz Joseph wearing a hat. Hungarian Jews liked the emperor 
who had been good to the Jews of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Under his rule, in 1867, a bill passed emancipating the Hungarian Jews and giving them full equality as citizens. We would also decorate the sukkah by hanging walnuts, grapes, and other fruits from the walls and shach. What we kids didn't like was eating in the sukkah on some of the colder evenings, but we were admonished for complaining, and indeed we too weathered through it. Passover or Pesach was a holiday that required a great deal of preparation. We cleaned the house from top to bottom to get rid of all the hamats, bread and other leavened foods, and we replaced our ordinary dishes with dishes used only on Passover. It was quite an upheaval, like spring cleaning plus. To this day, Passover conjures upon bittersweet memories. There were many happy Passovers, and then there was the saddest of them all, the last one in 1944, when my family already partially decimated with our three brothers absent, was still together. During the good times at the Passover Seder, we usually had our immediate family, plus Uncle Wilmush and Charolta. After my brother Jano got married, his wife Magda joined us too, so we had 12 or 13 guests for both Seder nights. Occasionally, we would have an unexpected guest as well. The Passover stories about the ancient Hebrews' enslavement in Egypt and how they were freed, a story that is told in the biblical book of Exodus and is read at the Seder from the Haggadah. To be truthful, as young children, we didn't like reading the lengthy story of the Exodus. Our minds were mainly on... When is dinner? But my father read the Haggadah slowly with feeling. I would ask the Manishtana the four questions because I was the youngest. Avi was very glad when I was old enough to recite the four questions and she was off the hook. Avi was an odd character. She would have the Haggadah in front of her on the table and underneath the table she would be reading a movie magazine, risking my father's wrath should he discover it. She was a gambler. As we grew older, we learned to appreciate the Passover story, but we were still bored by the length of it and were ever so happy when dinner was served. The excellent wine we had was a good compensation, though. A second cousin of my father's lived in the Tokai wine region and owned a kosher winery. The area was noted for its excellent grapes that were made into world-famous first-class wine. Every Passover, this cousin sent us a gift of a small barrel of kosher wine, the only wine my father trusted to be kosher enough. The younger kids had small glasses, but one memorable Passover, Clary graduated to regular wine glass and drank the mandatory four glasses of wine. She got good and drunk and started yelling, my liver is on fire. 
Off to bed she went. After dinner, we would sing one or two melodies, and then the kids would be put to bed while the men finished the Haggadah on their own. For us children, the holiday of Hanukkah meant watching our father light the Hanukkah in our window one tiny week for each of the eight nights of the holiday and singing Hanukkah songs. My mother made delicious chremsli patties, fried in oil, a Hungarian Jewish specialty, as a treat. Then we each received some pennies and started gambling with a dreidel, a spinning top that has different Hebrew letters on its four sides, which indicate if you win or lose when the dreidel stops spinning. That was lots of fun until our usual childish quarrels started. Every Friday night, my mother would light 14 candles. I'm not sure why 14. The set table always looked so festive with the white damask tablecloth, highly polished silver candlesticks, two large halas covered with the cloth embroidered with the word Shabbos, and the silver wine goblets for my father and brothers, who had each received one on their bar mitzvahs. When the 14 candles were lit, I felt magic in the air. Anya would wear a special white shawl instead of her usual kerchief and would make in-gathering motions with her arms welcoming the Shabbos. Then she would cover her eyes and say the prayer. With the onset of difficult times, Anya started cutting the candles in half to save money. Those 14 flames still had to flicker. By then, she often cried while saying the prayer. For me, the magic of it all dimmed irretrievably with our later sufferings. Today, I can only guess what Anu might have pleaded with her Almighty for. My father was very strict about the Havdalah ceremony, which signified the end of Shabbat. I am not sure why, but it was important to him that we were all home for this ceremony. A beautiful, long, multicolored braided wax candle was lit, and a prayer was said, and we had to smell some aromatic spices that were in a silver container. I wish my father had explained the meaning of it all. Maybe his ritualistic Judaism would have had more influence on us if he had.